Part three of Chapter three of Animal Ghosts. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. This reading by Allison Hester of Athens, Georgia. Animal Ghosts by Elliot O'Donnell. Chapter three, Part three. Yet another case of haunting by the phantasms of a horse comes to me from a gentleman in Marcel's, who told it me thus. It was 9 p.m. when I left my friend Maitland's hotel in Chateaubourne and, facing north, set out on my way to Lefer, where my headquarters had been for the past fortnight. Lefer is in the hills, and the road which separated it from Chateaubourne, wild and lonely enough in daylight, and when the weather is fair, is almost untraversable in winter. The night in question was Christmas Eve. The snow had fallen heavily during the day, and with the wind blowing in icy drops from the northeast, there was every prospect of another downfall. Maitland pressed me to stay in his hotel. It is sheer folly, he said, for you to attempt to get home in weather like this. It is pitch dark, you are not familiar with the route, and if you don't wander off the track and tumble over a precipice, you will walk into a snowdrift. Be sensible, sleep here. Much, however, as I should have liked to follow his counsel, I did not feel justified in doing so, as I had a lot of correspondence to attend to, and I realized it was most necessary for me to get back to Lefer without any further delay. It was true, the night was inky black, but with the aid of a lamp, I hadn't the slightest doubt I could find my way. Maitland bartered for a candle lantern with his host, and armed with this, a flagon of brandy and water, and a thick stick, I said goodbye to Chateaubourne. A couple of hundred yards saw me beyond the outskirts of the town, wherein I was the sole pedestrian, and silence reigned supreme. On and on I plodded, the feeble yellow light of my lantern just preventing me, but only just, from wandering from the track. The road, which for the first mile or so was tolerably level, gradually began to rise, and, as it did so, I noticed for the first time indistinct images of gigantic naked trees that, becoming more and more numerous, and closer and closer together, at length united their long and grotesquely shaped branches overhead, and I found myself in the depths of a vast forest. The snow, which had up to the present held off, now recommenced to fall, and presently the wind, which had for some time been slowly acquiring strength, came howling through the trees with the utmost fury the first blast swishing the lantern out of my hands and hurling me with considerable force into an undergrowth of thorns and brambles, out of which I extricated myself with no little difficulty. I was now in the sorriest of plights, enveloped on all sides in Stygian darkness. I was unable to discover my lantern and was thus totally at the mercy of the ruthless elements. There were only two courses before me, Either I must remain where I was and be frozen to death, or, making a guess at the route, I must push on ahead and run the risk of ending my life at the bottom of a ravine. I chose the latter. Groping about with my feet, 
until i at length discovered what i thought must be the right track i pushed ahead and staggering and stumbling forward managed to make some sort of progress terribly slow though it was the blinding darkness of the snowy night the intense silence and utter solitude of the place combined with the knowledge that on all sides of me lay holes and chasms dampened my spirits and raised strange phantoms in my imagination the wind now rose and the dismal sighing of the trees speedily grew into a series of the most perturbing screeches as the branches and trunks swayed to and fro like reeds before the violence of the hurricane at this juncture i gave myself up for lost and coming to a standstill up to my knees in snow was preparing to lie down and die when to my great joy a light suddenly appeared ahead of me and the next moment a man mounted on a big white horse rode noiselessly up to me he was wrapped in a shaggy great coat and a slouch hat worn low over his eyes completely hid his face from me in his disengaged hand he carried a lantern by jove i exclaimed i am glad to see you for i've lost the track to lafur can you tell me or better still show me the way to some house where i can put up for the remainder of the night the stranger made no reply but bidding me follow with a wave of his hand rode silently in front of me and although i tried to keep up with him i could not and the odd thing was that without apparently increasing his pace he always maintained his distance after proceeding in this manner for possibly ten minutes we suddenly turned to the left and i found myself in a big clearing in the wood with a long low-built house opposite me my guide then paused and indicating the front door of the house with an emphatic gesture of his hand seemed suddenly to melt away into thin air for although i peered about me on all sides to try to find some indications of him neither he nor his horse was anywhere to be seen thinking this was rather queer but quite ready to attribute it to natural causes i approached the building and making use of my knuckles in lieu of a knocker beat a loud tattoo on the woodwork there was no response again i rapped and the door slowly opening revealed a pair of gleaming dark eyes what do you want inquired a harsh voice in barbarous accents a night's lodging i replied and i'm willing to pay a good price for it for i am more than half frozen at this the door opened wider and i found myself confronted by a woman with a candle she had not the most prepossessing of expressions though her hair eyes and features were decidedly good she was dressed with tawdry smartness earrings necklace and rings and very high-heeled buckled shoes indeed her costume was so out of keeping with the rusticity of her surroundings as to be quite extraordinary this fact struck me at once as did her fingers which though spatulate and ugly had been manicured and of course very much over manicured for effect had this not been the case i probably should not have noticed them but the unnatural gloss on them exaggerated by the candlelight made me look and i was at once impressed with the criminal formation of the fingers 
The club-shaped ends denoted something very bad, something homicidal, and as my eyes wandered from the hands to the face, I saw with a thrill of horror that the ears were set low down and far back on the head, and that the eyes gleamed with the sinister glitter of the wolf. Still, I must take my chance, the woman or the wood. It had to be one of the two. If you'll step inside, monsieur, she said, I'll see what can be done for you. We have only recently come here, and the house is anyhow at present. Still, if you don't mind roughing it a little, we can let you have a bed, and you can rely upon me that it is clean and well aired. I followed her eagerly, and she led me down a narrow passage into a big room with low ceiling, traversed with a ponderous oak beam, blackened with the smoke of endless peat fires. Before the blazing faggots on the hearth sat a burly individual in a blue blouse. On our arrival, he arose, and, as his huge form towered above me, I thought I had never seen anyone quite so hideous, nor so utterly unlike the orthodox Frenchman. Obeying his injunction, for I can scarcely call it an invitation, to sit down, I took a seat by the fire, and warming my half-frozen limbs, waited impatiently, whilst the woman made up my bed and prepared supper. The storm had now reached cyclonic dimensions, and under its stupendous fury, the whole house, stoutly built though it was, swayed on its foundations. The howling of the wind in the rude, old-fashioned chimney, and along the passage, and the frenzied beating of the snow against the diamond window panes, deadened all other noises, and rendered any attempt at conversation absolutely abortive. So I ate my meal in silence, pretending not to notice the subtle interchange of glances that constantly took place between the strangely assorted pair. Whether they were husband and wife, what the man did for a living, were questions that continually occurred to me, and I found my eyes incessantly wandering to the numerous packing cases, piles of carpets, casks, and other articles which corroborated the woman's statement that they had but recently moved in. Once I attempted to empty the coffee, which was black and peculiarly bitter, under the table, but had to desist, as I saw the man's devilish eyes fixed searchingly on me. I then pushed aside the cup, and on the woman asking if it was not to my liking, I shouted out that I was not in the least thirsty. After this incident, the covert looks became more numerous, and my suspicions increased accordingly. At the first opportunity, I got up, and, signaling my intention to go to bed, was preparing to leave my seat, when my host, walking to the cupboard, fetched out a bottle of cognac, and pouring out a tumbler, handed it me with a mean that I dare not refuse. The woman then led me up a flight of rickety wooden steps into a sepulchral-looking chamber with no other furniture in it save a long, narrow iron bedstand, a dilapidated washstand, a very unsteady, common deal table on which was a looking-glass and a collar stud and a rush-bottomed chair. Setting the candlestick on the dressing table, and assuring me again that the bed was well aired, my hostess withdrew, observing as she left the room that she would get me a nice breakfast and call me at seven. 
at seven how i wished it was seven now as i stood in the midst of the floor shivering for the room was icy cold i suddenly saw a dark shadow emerge from a remote corner of the room and slide surreptitiously toward the door where it halted my eyes then fell on the lock and i perceived that there was no key no key and that evil-looking pair below i must barricade the door somehow yet with what there was nothing of any weight in the room nothing i began to feel horribly tired and sleepy so sleepy that it was only with supreme effort i could prevent my eyelids closing ah i had it a wedge i had a knife of wood there was plenty a piece off the washstand table or chair anything would suffice i essayed to struggle to the chair my limbs tottered my eyelids closed then the shadow from the doorway moved towards and through me and with the coldness of its passage i revived with desperate energy i cut a couple of chunks off the washstand and paring them down eventually succeeded in slipping them in the crack of the door and rendering it impossible to open from the outside that done i staggered to the bed and falling dressed as i was on the counterpane sank into a deep sleep how long i slept i cannot say i suddenly heard the loud neighing of a horse which seemed to come from just under my window and as in a vision saw by my side in the bed a something which gradually developed into the figure of a man the counterpart of the mysterious being in the shaggy coat who had guided me to the house he was fully dressed sound asleep and breathing heavily as i was looking a dark shadow fell across the sleeper's face and on glancing up i perceived to my horror a black something crawling on the floor nearer and nearer it came until it reached the side of the bed when i immediately recognized the evil smirking face of my hostess in one hand she held a lamp and in the other a horn-handled knife setting the lamp on the floor she coolly undid the collar of the sleeping man and i saw a stud the counterpart of the one on the dressing table fall on the bare boards with a sharp tap and disappear in the surrounding darkness then the woman felt the edge of the knife with her repulsive thumb and calmly cut the helpless man's throat i screamed and the murderess and her victim instantly vanished and i realized i was alone in the room and very much awake whether all that had occurred was a dream i cannot say with certainty though i am inclined to think not for some minutes my heart pulsated painfully and then as the sound of its throbbing grew fainter and fainter i heard a curious noise outside my room someone was ascending the stairs i endeavored to rise but could not fear an awful ungovernable fear held me spellbound the steps paused outside the door the handle of which was gently turned then there was a suggestive silence then whispering then another turning of the handle and then my state of coma abruptly ended and i stepped noiselessly out of the bed and crept to the window i was heard stop him the woman cried out he's trying to escape 
Use the gun. She hurled herself against the door as she spoke, whilst the man tore downstairs. It was now a matter of seconds. The slightest accident, a hesitation, and I was lost. Swinging open the window, I scrambled on the ledge, and without the slightest idea of the distance, dropped. There was a brief rushing through air, and I alighted, safe and sound, on the snow. Blessed snow! Had it not been for the snow, I should have, in all probability, hurt myself. I alighted not an instant too soon, for hardly had I touched the ground before my gigantic host came tearing round the angle of the wall with a lantern in one hand and a gun in the other. I immediately dashed away, and, thanks to the intense darkness of the morning, for it must have been two o'clock, had no difficulty in evading my pursuer, who fired twice in rapid succession. On and on I went, sometimes falling up to my armpits in the snowdrift, and sometimes stunning myself against a low-hanging branch of a tree. With the first rays of sunlight, however, my troubles came to an end. The snow had ceased falling, and I quickly alighted on a track, which brought me to a village, whence I obtained a conveyance into Lafur. I reported the affair to the local police, and had a party of gendarmes at once set off to arrest the miscreants. But alas, they had fled. The house was pulled down, and, on the soil being excavated, a dozen or more skeletons of men and women, all showing unmistakable signs of foul play, together with the remains of a horse, were found in various parts of the premises. The place was a veritable Golgotha. I suppose the phantom horse and rider had appeared to me with the sole purpose of making their fate known. If so, they at all events partly achieved their end, though the mystery surrounding their identity was never solved. All the remains, both human and animal, were removed elsewhere and accorded a decent burial. The site of their original interment, however, is, I believe, still haunted, and maybe will remain so till the miscreants are brought to book. Brief Summary After a little consideration, I am inclined to think there are quite as many authentic cases of hauntings by the phantasms of horses as by the phantasms of cats and dogs. Innumerable horses die unnatural deaths. Apart from those killed in war, many, more particularly, it is true in the olden times, have been murdered in the highways along with their masters, whilst all but the comparative few, when no longer of use to their owners, are butchered in the slaughterhouse, and subsequently dispatched into the zoological gardens to be eaten by lions and tigers. So much for Christianity and for man's gratitude. How much better would be the promoters of the White Slave Traffic Act be employed if, instead of trying to pass a bill which obviously cannot cure the evil it aims at, but can only, by diverting the course of that evil, drive from pillar to post thousands of defenseless, albeit erring women, they were to labor to secure a peaceful ending for our four-footed toilers who work for us all their lives, never strike, never think of a pension for old age, and never even dream of a vote. Alas, if only our poor horses could vote, 
what a different attitude would our pharisaical politicians at once adopt towards them phantasms of living horses from what i have experienced and have been told i am of the opinion that horses possess the same faculty of separating their immaterial from their material bodies as cats and dogs i knew a virginian lady who had a piebald horse that frequently appeared simultaneously in two places she lived in an old country house near winchfield and one morning when she went out into the breakfast room she was surprised to see the piebald horse standing on the gravel path outside the window looking in at her when she called it by name it immediately melted into fine air going round to the stables she found the horse in its stall and on inquiry was informed that it had been there all the time the same thing frequently occurred other members of the household besides herself witnessing it and so like in all its details was the immaterial horse to the material that they were often at a loss to tell which was which the phenomenon sometimes occurring when the real horse was awake and sometimes when it was asleep proves that the animal possessed the faculty of projecting its spiritual ego astral body or whatever you like to call it both consciously and unconsciously i know of many similar instances Horses and the Psychic Faculty of Scent Horses, in a rather less degree than cats, and in much the same degree as dogs, possess the property of scenting the advent and the presence of spirits. On more than one occasion, when I have been riding after dusk, my horse has suddenly come to an abrupt halt and shown unmistakable signs of terror. I have not been able to see anything to account for its conduct but on subsequent inquiry have learned either that a tragedy was actually known to have taken place there or that the spot had a long-borne reputation for being haunted and my experiences are the experiences of countless other people before a death a horse will often neigh repeatedly outside the house of the doomed person and not infrequently show evidences of terror in passing close to it from which i deduce the horse can at all events scent the proximity of the phantom of death like the dog however i think it only possesses this peculiar psychic property in a limited degree it can for example readily detect the whereabouts of phantasms haunting localities but not so easily those haunting people it shows little or no discrimination on sight between cruel and brutal people and those who are kind giving the same amount of passing space to the one as it does to the other yet on the other hand i have watched horses at night standing in the fields head, their heads thrown back a transfixed far-off expression in their eyes sniffing the atmosphere and snuffling it in a manner that strongly suggested to me that they were carrying on by means of some silent secret code a conversation with some superphysical presence which they either saw or scented or very likely both scent i am convinced is the medium of conversation not only between superphysical animals but between material animals and if we ever wish to converse with spirits we must employ cats dogs and horses to teach us phantom coaches there are a few parts of the british isles few countries in europe which have not their phantom coaches 
Perhaps the most famous are those that haunt a road near Newport, South Wales, and an old highway in Devon. A Spectre Coach and Horses in Pembrokeshire. Miss Mary L. Lewes, in an article called Some More Welsh Ghosts that appeared in the Occult Review for December 1907, writes thus. In common with several other districts in Great Britain and Ireland, Pembrokeshire possesses a good phantom coach legend, localized in the southern part of the county, at a place where four roads meet, called Samson Cross. In old days, the belated farmer, driving home in his gig from market, was apt to cast a nervous glance over his shoulder as his pony slowly climbed the last pitch heading up to the cross. For tradition says that every night a certain Lady Z, who lived in the 17th century and whose monument is in the church close by, drives over from Tenby, ten miles distant, in a coach drawn by headless horses, guided by a headless coachman. She also has no head, and arriving by midnight at Sampson Cross, the whole equipage is said to disappear in a flame of fire with a loud noise of explosion. Miss Mary L. Lewes goes on to add, A clergyman living in the immediate neighborhood, who told the writer the story, said that some people believed the ghostly traveler had been safely laid many years ago in the waters of the lake not far off. He added, However that might be, it was an odd fact that his sedate and elderly cob, when driven home past the cross after nightfall, would invariably start as if frightened there, a thing which never happened by daylight. What these kinds of spectral horses are, no one can say. At the most, despite what theosophists and occultists may declare to the contrary, one can only theorize, and the speculations of one person, be he who he may, seem to me to be of no more consequence than those of another. For my own part, I am inclined to think that whereas, in some cases, the ghostly coach horses are the phantoms of horses that were killed on the highways, in others they are either vice elementals or elementals whose particular function it is to prognosticate death either the death of those who see them, or the death of someone connected with those who see them. A Phantom Horse and Policeman According to one of my correspondents, Mr. T.P., a comparatively modern phantom rider, has been seen in Canada. Writing to me from C., where he lives, he says, it is stated that this town is periodically haunted by the phantom of a tall, fair policeman mounted on a white horse and clothed in the uniform of the forties, namely tailcoat, tight trousers, and tall hat. His phantom beat extends from a gateway at the commencement of Cod Hill along the park side of Pablo Street to Sutton Street and Adam Street down Dane Street and back through Pablo Street to the gateway on Cod Hill. A gentleman well known in the art world, who, in order to avoid publicity, wishes to be designated Mr. Bates, gave me his experience of the phenomena as follows. Yes, I have seen the ghostly policeman and his milk-white horse. I was walking along Pablo Street on the park side one gray afternoon in November, with the express intention of meeting a friend at my club in Royal Street 
when to my surprise just as i was about a hundred yards from the gateway on cod hill i was overtaken by a tall fair-haired man riding a white horse he was so dressed that i stared in astonishment he was wearing the costume of seventy or eighty years ago and reminded me of the policeman in crookshank's illustrations of dickens i was not frightened because i thought he must be someone masquerading and in my curiosity to see his face i hastened my steps to overtake him i failed for although he appeared to be riding slowly hardly moving at all i could not draw an inch nearer to him this made me think and i examined him more critically then i noticed several things about him that at first had escaped my notice they were these one that although he was mounted he was wearing walking clothes he had on long trousers and thick clumsy boots two that his ears and neck were perfectly colorless of an unnatural and startling white three that despite the incongruity of his attire no one but myself seemed to see him on he rode neither looking to the left nor to the right until he came to sutton street when without paying the slightest attention to traffic he began to cross over there were crowds of vehicles passing at the time and one of them rushed right on him making sure he would be killed i uttered an ejaculation of horror judge then of my amazement when instead of seeing him lying on the ground crushed all out of shape i saw him still riding on as leisurely and unconcernedly as if he had been on a country road the vehicle had passed right through him though i had hitherto scoffed at ghosts i was now certain i had seen one and suddenly becoming conscious how very cold it was i tore on not feeling at all comfortable till i had reached the warm cheery and thoroughly material quarters of my club to corroborate the evidence of mr bates i append a narrative given me verbally by miss hartley who like mr bates had up to the time of her experience posed as a pronounced and somewhat bitter skeptic she was an emphatic freethinker and then had no belief whatsoever in a future life now she believes a sight more than most people one afternoon in february nineteen eleven she stated just as twilight was commencing i left the park where i had been exercising my dog and turning into pablo street made for bright street at the corner of wolf street i saw something so strange that i involuntarily halted riding slowly along on a big white horse a few paces ahead of me was an enormous policeman in the quaint attire of the forties top hat tail coat tight trousers just as i had so often seen portrayed in old books he was riding stiffly as if unaccustomed to the saddle and kept looking rigidly in front of him thinking it was someone doing it either for a joke or a wager i was greatly tickled and kept saying to myself well you are a sport an a one sport i tried to catch him up to see how he made up his face but could not for although the horse never seemed to quicken its pace a mere crawl and i ran it nevertheless maintained precisely the same distance in front of me 
when we had progressed in this fashion some hundred or so yards i perceived a city policeman advancing towards us come now i said to myself we shall see some fun the 1911 copper meeting the peeler of 1840 i wonder what he will think of him to my intense astonishment however neither even as much as gave the other a fleeting glance but passed by unmoved and to all appearance wholly unconscious of each other a few yards further i espied a negro looking intently in a store window just as the strange policeman came up to him he gave a violent start turned round and stared at him gasped his cheeks ashy pale his eyes bulging made some exclamation i could not catch and dashing past me fled then and not till then did i begin to feel funny further on still we came to a crossing a carriage and pair with a coronet on the panels of the door was standing waiting directly the policeman approached both the horses reared so violently they all but threw the coachman off the box one of the men cried out heavens bill what's that but the other and older of the two who was clinging to the reins with all his might merely swore convinced now that i was on the trail of something not human something in all probability superphysical and impelled by a fascination i could not resist i followed at the top of Wolf Street, the policeman paused, then, crossing slowly over, turned into Dane Street, down which he continued to ride with the same mechanical and automatic tread. At length, when within a few feet of a certain shop, over which is a flat that has long borne a reputation for being haunted, the horse came to a dead halt, and, horse and rider, veering slowly round, looked at me. What I saw I shall never forget. I saw the faces of the dead, the long since dead. For some moments they confronted me, and then vanished, vanished where they stood. I saw them again under precisely the same conditions two days later, and I have seen them once since. I am not an imaginative or highly strung person, but am, on the contrary, exceedingly practical and matter-of-fact, no better proof of which I can give than this fact. I am engaged to be married to a Quebec solicitor. An Irish haunting. Mr. Reginald B. Spann, in a most interesting article called Some Glimpses of the Unseen, that appeared in the Occult Review for February 1906, writes as follows. Another strange incident, which also occurred in Ireland, was told me by a coachman in my cousin's employ at Kilpecan near Limerick. This man had previously been a park-keeper to Lord Donorail in County Cork. One bright moonlight night, he was coming across Lord Donorail's park, having been round to see that the gates were shut, when his attention was drawn to the distant baying of hounds, and he stopped to listen, as the sounds seemed to proceed from within the park walls, and he knew there were no hounds kept on the estate. His young son was with him, and also heard the noise, which was getting louder and clearer, and was evidently moving rapidly in their direction. His first idea was that a pack of hounds, which were kept in the hunting kennels a few miles away, had escaped, and had somehow gotten into the park, although he had seen that the gates were closed, and there was really no way by which they could have entered. The baying of hounds, as if in full cry, sounded closer and closer, 
and suddenly, out of the shadow of some trees, a number of foxhounds, running at full speed, appeared in the clear light of the moon. They raced past the amazed spectators, a whole pack of them, followed closely by an elderly man on a large horse. Although they came very near, no sound could be heard but the baying of one or two of the hounds. The galloping of the horse was not heard at all. They swung across the grass at a tremendous pace and were lost to view round the end of a plantation. The park keeper knew that all the gates were shut and that it would be impossible for a pack of hounds to pass out, and he thought the mystery might be solved the next day. However, it was never explained by any natural cause. No hounds or horsemen had been in the park. The mansion was closed, Lord Donorell being away, and no one had the right of entering the grounds within the park walls. He heard later that there was a story in the neighborhood about the ghost of a former Lord Donorell haunting the park, and possibly the spectral horseman was he. I questioned the man and his son closely about it, and am convinced that they were not deceived by hallucination, and that their account is perfectly true. To this account, Mr. Spann adds this note. The apparition of the hounds and huntsmen was witnessed on an estate belonging to Lord Donorell in the south of Ireland, Donorell Park. The man who told me the incident was coachman in the service of my cousin near Limerick. His young son confirmed his father's account, as he also saw it. Yours faithfully, Reginald B. Spann. To throw additional light on the matter, Mr. Ralph Shirley, editor of the Occult Review, published the following letter written to him by Lord Donorell. Dear Shirley, It is a rather curious thing that neither Lady Castletown nor Lady Donorell has ever heard of the story of the moonlight vision of Lord Donorell and the pack of hounds. However, there is a man at Donorell called Jones, a chemist, who is a most enthusiastic antiquarian and a dabbler in the occult sciences, and he takes the greatest interest in all that concerns the St. Leaguers. Lady Castletown wrote to him, and the reply comes from his brother. I suppose he is away, and that I send you. Lady Donorell says it must refer to the third Lord Donorell of the first creation, who was killed in a duel afterwards and there appear to be a lot of stories which Jones has ferreted out or been told. Of course, I don't know how far you could say Jones was authentic. All I can say is that he believes the things himself. Yours sincerely, Donorell. December 27, 1905 I should explain, adds Mr. Shirley, that Lady Castletown is daughter to the late Lord Donorell and present owner of Donorell House. Here follows the enclosure, i.e., the extract made by Walter A. Jones, Donorell, from his notes on the legends of peasantry in connection with Donorell branch of the St. Leaguer family, dated December 21, 1905. Wild Darrell Coat, as everyone knows, is haunted by the spirits of the notorious Wild Will Darrell and the horse he invariably rode and which eventually broke his neck. But there are many wild Darrells. All Europe is being overrun by them. They nightly tear, on their phantom horses, over the German and Norwegian forests, and more lands that echo and re-echo with their hoarse shouts and the mournful baying of their grisly hounds. 
Many travelers in Russia and Germany, journeying through the forests at night, have caught the sound of wails, of moans that, starting from the far distance, have gradually come nearer and nearer. Then they have heard the winding of a horn, the shouting and cursing of the huntsmen, and in a biting cold wind have seen the whole cavalcade sweep by. According to various authorities on the subject, this spectral chase goes by different names. In Thuringia and elsewhere, it is Halkenberg or Halkenberend. The story being that Halkenberg, a German knight, who had devoted his whole life to the chase on his deathbed, had told the officiating priest that he cared not a jot for heaven, but only for hunting, the priest losing patience and exclaiming, Then hunt till doomsday. So in all weathers, in snow and ice, Hackenberg, his horse and hounds, are seen careering after imaginary game. There are similar stories current in the Netherlands, Denmark, Russia, and practically all over Europe, and not only Europe, but in many of the states and departments of the New World. This being so, I think there must be a substantial substratum of truth underlying the beliefs, fantastic as they may appear, and yet are no more fantastic than many of the stories we are asked to give absolute credence to in the Bible. In Old Castile, the spirit of a Moorish leader, who won many victories over the Spaniards, and was drowned by reason of his heavy armor in a swamp of the river Duero, still haunts his burial place, a piece of marshy ground near Burgos. There, weird noises, such as the winding of a huntsman's horn and the neighing of a horse, are heard, and the phantasm of the dead moor is seen mounted on a white horse, followed by twelve huge black hounds. In Sweden, many of the peasants say, when a noise like that of a coach and horses is heard rumbling past in the dead of night, it is the white rider. Whilst in Norway, they say of the same sounds, it is the hunt of the devil and his four horses. In Saxony, the rider is believed to be Barbarossa, the celebrated hero of olden days. Near Fontainebleau, Hugh Capet is stated to ride a gigantic sable horse to the palace, where he hunted before the assassination of Henry the Fourth, and in the lands the rider is thought to be Judas Iscariot. In other parts of France, the wild huntsman is known as the Harlequin, and in some parts of Brittany he is Herod in pursuit of the Holy Innocents. Alas, that no such Herod visits London! How welcome would he be, were he only to flout a few of the brawling brats who, allowed to go anywhere they please, make an inferno of every road they choose to play in. Here my notes on horses end, and although the evidence I have offered may have failed to convince many, I myself am fully satisfied that these noble and indispensable animals do not terminate their existence in this world, but pass on to another, and, let us all sincerely hope, far happier plain. End of Part 3, Chapter 3 of Animal Ghosts